Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me is Brad Hallier. And Brad, we got a lot of uh, things to wrap up as far as a lot of seasons, high school, even some college teams finishing up a football season and basketball and college underway. And we got high school basketball to talk about this Friday. So let's jump right in and let's talk about the end of the Kansas Jayhawk football season. And really for the third straight game, the Kansas Jayhawks played pretty well in a 34-28 home loss to West Virginia, ending up with KU having a 2-10 and record this season. A um, couple of things in that game really stood out is Jalen Daniels, I think, is really good. I think he's going to be their quarterback of the future, 22 of 32, 249. He did have a couple of picks, had one passing, one rushing touchdown. And the other thing that really stood out in that game is KU's rush defense couldn't stop anything. Um, West Virginia, two runners actually went over 100 yards. Brown, 19 carries, 156 yards, a touchdown. And Mathis, 22 for 118. But still, KU in that thing right till the last. So I think the last three games of this season gave KU fans a lot of hope that maybe the ship is finally pointed in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. posted on Twitter something to the effect of, I can't believe it, but I'm actually kind of sad the season's over because these last few weeks have just been so encouraging and so, you know, just uh, promising that it, it was, it, it, it was, gosh, it just felt different that here at the end of the year. You know, you, you actually go into this offseason genuinely feeling optimistic that things might be getting ready to turn around for the Jayhawks. It was a game that they had every opportunity to win, much like TCU. Uh, they, they turned down a short field goal in the first quarter, got stuffed on fourth down. They missed the field goal. Two interceptions in the end zone. I mean, you could say right there, that's 12 points they squandered in a game that they lost by six. So definitely was a game that the Jayhawks could have won. Well, what do you think about uh, they're already making some news right now as Lance Leipold uh, already made some coaching changes. He uh, fired a couple of uh, defensive coaches, and I don't think they have named replacements yet. So what do you what do you think about – Lance Leipold shaking things up on the defensive side of the ball already just a few days into the postseason. Well, def- the, the defensive side, uh, from what I can gather, has never really been Lance Leipold's strong suit. Like when he was at Buffalo, the offense was definitely ahead of the de- uh, the offense was definitely ahead of the defense. I think we've maybe even seen that a little bit this year with the, with the Jayhawks. But, you know, it, it, there, there's always going to be turnover on staff. And I think if uh, we're being honest, the, the defense was the weaker of the two units this year. So I definitely can see his, his line of thinking there. Yeah, I, I think I like it, too. It just for nothing out what I just pointed out, the, the, it was leaking like a sieve there on Saturday. They just couldn't stop. And, and let's face it, West Virginia right now is a better team than Kansas. But still, to be in the those games and have chances, I think uh, – I think we are like you. I wish the season wasn't over, but for the first time in recent memory, I will actually be looking forward to next fall when KU gets started to see um, exactly what they can do. But uh, two and ten again, it's two more wins than last year. So um, I think it's a. I think it was a good season uh, for the Jayhawks. Well, um, let's look at while we're talking about the Big Twelve the big 12 championship game. And this is, I don't know a lot of people would have picked Oklahoma state and Baylor being in those, uh, the two participants in that game. what do you think about um, Bedlam OSU winning that game? And what do you think about OSU Baylor for the second time this season with a whole lot on the line, especially for Oklahoma state? It's probably been quite a few years since uh, Oklahoma or Texas haven't played in the big 12 championship game, but uh, they're they're not really even members of the Big 12 anymore, so that's okay. I think it's appropriate that we see some teams like Oklahoma State and Baylor. I do think Oklahoma State's got a chance at the playoffs, Scott. I think if they win, yeah. and of course, if, if Alabama loses, I don't care how close it is, that would be two losses. You can't have a two-loss Alabama team in the playoff. So I think that if Alabama loses and Oklahoma State wins, they are definitely in. If the top four win and or, or remain uh, unchanged in, in, as far as losses are concerned, and Oklahoma State wins, it could get pretty sticky. I don't know if you saw – we're recording this on Tuesday. I don't know if you saw the the interview with the committee guy on, on TV, but evidently he did not commit to 
Cincinnati essentially being safe. And on mm-hmm. top of that, he also mentioned that Notre Dame's uh, chances took a hit when when Brian Kelly left. I was like, well, well what does that got to do with anything? <laughs> they, they, they lost their coach. Well, what if they win their last game and a bunch of teams uh, lose ahead of them? Notre Dame's uh, not going to make it just because their their head coach left? <laughs> I don't understand that one either. I guess the way I look at it is if – Cincinnati, I believe they've got one more game. They would have the AAC championship game. I need to look in and see who they are playing. They're playing uh, a good Houston team. They're playing Houston. Okay, yeah, that should be a good game. But let, let's say since if Cincinnati and Notre Dame went out, there is no way you can put Notre Dame ahead of Cincinnati because they got beat head-to-head, and Cincinnati did it in South Bend. I think there's no way that – I think even this committee could make that bonehead of a decision and put Notre Dame ahead of Cincinnati. If I'm Cincinnati, I'm a big Baylor Bear fan going into this weekend because I absolutely can see it, Brad. If Oklahoma State goes in and say they beat Baylor 42 to 10 or something like that, Cincinnati beats Houston by a field goal. If I'm Cincinnati, I would be on pins and needles because I can see the committee putting Oklahoma State in in front of Cincinnati. Well, even more than that, I mean, what what if I I think the only team or I think the top two teams are pretty well safe. But uh, the uh, you know that the committee wants to do everything they can to try to get Alabama in there. Oh, yeah. And if if Georgia goes out and say they win an overtime thriller or a last second field goal or something like that, you know that they're going to do everything they can to squeeze Alabama in, even a two loss Alabama team. And look, I, there's no doubt that Al- Alabama is one of the best teams in the country. Are they one of the four best teams? Probably, but you you can't have a two loss team in there over, say, a one loss Oklahoma State, an undefeated Cincinnati, a one loss Notre Dame team. You, you just can't. And you got to look to Alabama. If you want to talk extremely lucky, fortunate to still just have one loss, they should have lost that game in the Iron Bowl. Um, there's no doubt in my mind they should have lost that game. To a um, mediocre Auburn team. To a mediocre Auburn team. I, I understand it was rivalry weekend, but still, if you're if you're a legitimate CFP team, you're, you're going out and taking care of business in that ball game. Uh what what would you see? Say say Georgia wins in double overtime over Alabama. Um, Oklahoma State blows out Baylor. Cincinnati wins a squeaker against Houston. It, can, in your mind, is there any way, any conceivable way, you could see them keeping Alabama in front of Cincinnati? Can I see it? Yeah, I can. Do see I think? It. Do, do do I think they should, or do I do I think? you know, realistic that they should, or, I mean, can you make a valid argument? No, you cannot have a two loss Alabama team. I don't care who they've lost or how close it is. You can't have a two loss team, a two loss, Alabama, a two, two loss, anybody ahead of undefeated Cincinnati. You're correct. I mean, I, I absolutely wouldn't do it, um, but you never know with a committee uh, making those decisions. It, it, it's going to be, let's just say it's going to be a very, interesting final weekend of college football as far as I guess what we consider still the regular season with all these championship games going um what's while we're on the college football talk uh how about you know people will call Lincoln Riley a liar Brad but he's not he was asked a question if he was going to go take the LSU coaching job and he answered it correctly he said he wasn't and the next (laughs) the USC head coach how about that yeah, it's it's wild right now, and I know that some people are kind of turned off by some of this. But look, I mean, if 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 the University of Kansas came in and offered, or or Barton Community College, or Butler Community College, or any college of that matter, came in and offered to double my salary from Hutch, uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking it. I'm not even thinking twice about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and you look at you know Brian Kelly. Also, you've already alluded to that leaving Notre Dame to go to LSU. Um, I, I understand these schools, the minute the regular season is over, they have to jump on these coaching hires. I hate it for their previous teams. Did you see who's going to coach Oklahoma in their bowl game? Big game Bobby. Big game Bobby is back for one game only. He made that very clear, but Bob Stoops will coach Oklahoma. I, I, I assume a coordinator will 
be the interim head coach for Notre Dame, whatever bowl game that is. Can you imagine, Brad, if would Brian Kelly, is there any chance in the world if Notre Dame sneaks into the CFP, he coaches them in that game? I don't think so. I, I, I think that, uh, no, I don't think there's any way at all. And, and wouldn't that be ironic, huh? If, if you know, he's had a great run at Notre Dame too. Let's not forget that these he's been in a couple of playoffs. He's been in the national championship. I don't think the question is success, but wouldn't it just kind of be funny if they sneak in and somehow end up winning the national championship without him? Well, you know, there is precedent, although you remember when um, Central Florida under Scott Frost um, had that undefeated season, um, crowned unofficial national champions that year. He had accepted the Nebraska coaching job, but worked out in the deal that he and his staff were going to be allowed to coach and did coach and win their bowl game. I believe that's when they beat Auburn um, that year in the, uh, I believe it was the Peach Bowl that they beat Auburn in. So there's is precedent for it, but that that is the exception instead of the rule for sure. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I, I can't remember if it was Postman Gino or post Gill, Kansas, you might be surprised. I don't, and I don't know if you remember this or not. might be surprised to hear they had Jim Harbaugh lined up as, as to come to Kansas. I don't know if you remember that or not. I do not. Uh, his wife is, is an alumna of the University of Kansas. And I think Harbaugh was at Stanford at the time. Does that sound right? I think that's correct, yeah. Okay. And they had, and you, you know what the, one, the, 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 the reason he didn't take the job? He wanted to coach Stanford in the bowl game, and Lou Perkins said no. Oh, well, that was a good decision, wasn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, so we didn't get Jim Harbaugh, and uh, obviously look what he's done, but uh, <laughs> so it goes. So so it goes for the woes of KU football, but uh, I do think they have found their man, and I think I think they're on the – the right track. Well, um, other sports, high school football here in Kansas finished up with the eight championship games this past Saturday. So let's take a look from uh, top to bottom. We'll spend a little bit more time on the games that we covered and Ad Astra covered. Uh, a little bit of a surprise, I think, to some people in 6A as the Derby train derailed by Blue Valley Northwest comfortable fashion to 41-21. You surprised at all by that outcome. Not necessarily, not necessarily that Blue Valley Northwest won, but just the, they were up 28 nothing at one point in that game, Scott. I mean, they were just putting it to Derby. And I did make mention last week that the one thing I was kind of curious about was, is, you know, Derby's been there so many times. Kind of like Hutch had been there so many times back in 2012 when they lost to Shawnee Mission West. And then, you know, Derby's been there so much. And, you know, maybe eventually you kind of take it for granted a little bit. You, you forget how important it is to get there. And I'm not saying that's the case for Derby. But what I am saying is that Blue Valley Northwest definitely wasn't like that. And you can't begin to tell me that a first-time finalist like Blue Valley Northwest maybe didn't appreciate the pomp and circumstance more than Derby did of, of the, getting to state, getting there, and how important it is to get there. You know, they, they appreciate – I mean, they're 0-9 when those seniors are freshmen. They appreciate as much as anybody, I think, how hard it is. So, And I'm not saying that's the case, but I, it wouldn't surprise me either if that maybe played a factor. It certainly could have, um, you know, the motive, you like to think that the Derby kids were just as motivated, but like you said, when you've been there, done that already, you, you might not have that edge as to when you're trying to capture your first championship. Well, in, in 5A, Mill Valley um, had a battle, but they ended up defeating Mays after a really great May season, 28-14. I don't think anybody surprised Mill Valley champs again. No, and, you know, kudos to Mays making it to the championship game. I think their quarterback had a pretty tough game. But, uh, yeah, Mill Valley's for now, they're the, the power in the eastern side of the state and definitely uh, no, no surprise in any capacity there. Well, in 4A, we, we all warned everybody on the podcast last week that do not look at the St. James Academy record. I believe it was 8-4 and four going into the game against Andover Central. And there again – St. James Academy, 28-21, in a good ball game, but still they they played those 6A schools early on for those losses and close losses, and they end up beating Andover Central 
denying them a title. So I don't think there was that. I don't think that was a big surprise. You see, kind of throw those records out. Yeah, maybe maybe about the only surprise was that it wasn't more lopsided of a win for St. James. So kudos to Andover Central for giving them such a good game. I think they actually led the most of the way or didn't fall behind until the fourth quarter. So we move into uh, 3A, Brad. <laughs> a game that uh, you uh, unfortunately had to cover on Saturday. And you and I kind of speculated that it might have been possible to Andale Southeast of Saline was actually going to be the championship game, and it certainly was, as Andale in the championship just destroys Frontenac, shuts him out 53 to nothing. You were there. Um, no surprise to anybody. I think maybe the margin of victory, the only slight surprise. Yeah, it's 18 to nothing at halftime. Andale's up, and I'm trying to tell the listeners that, you know, Frontenac's got the ball first, and they – and I said, you know what? They got dominated the first half, but they go down and score here. It's game on. And I really and I, I really believe that. You know, front neck, you know, regroup at halftime. They come out with a strong drive for a touchdown, but didn't happen. Uh, I think they punted. First play from scrimmage, Jandale, touchdown. Punted again. First play, touchdown. Then they punted again. And then they actually had like a long five-play drive for a touchdown. Then they fumbled it. First play, touchdown. I mean, it happens so fast in the third quarter when Andale scored 27 points. I mean, it's just a juggernaut. And, Scott, well, they've won, what, 38 games in a row, and they got a long ways to go to get close to Smith Center. But, boy, I tell you what, at this point, I'm not going to say that they're going to catch Smith Center's record of, what, was it 79 straight wins or something like that. But we might be talking again next year about a, what, I guess would be up to a 51-game winning streak. I mean, this, there, there's a lot of players coming back next year for Andale. They've got a rolling, and I just – I, I, I just don't see it right now. I don't, I don't see anybody, uh, you know, in 3A coming close to them. I was just thinking, you know, you and I did the Andale-Wichita Collegiate game that looking at that roster, I know there were some seniors, but um, there was a lot of underclassmen. And then you just look at the size of Andale's roster. It's as big or bigger than a lot of 5 and 6A schools. I mean, <laughs> just get so many kids out that play so much time in the junior varsity to, to hone their skills and get better when they move up to the varsity. It's just, it's unbelievable what, what, what they do year in and year out as they're on a three-peat and we'll look for a four-peat next year. And there's another repeat in class 2A, uh, not a surprise to many, 35-12 Rossville over Beloit. I think, again, what we talked about with Beloit, their one kryptonite is if they get behind, they didn't really have the ability to throw the ball, and that's pretty much what Rossville did to them. Yeah, and uh, I know someone from Beloit, and uh, they had told me that they didn't really that deep down, I think most people from Beloit didn't really expect to win this game. I mean, you just don't see a three-loss team hanging with a team like Rossville uh, very much and you know good season for Beloit though I mean they made it to the semifinals the year before and this time they make it to the championship game with uh, some close and exciting wins along the way they definitely showed that they deserve to be there but uh, kind of like uh, 3A not many teams in 2A are on Rossville's level yeah when they won the the war on 24 so handily uh, against Silver Lake you had a feeling this again was going to be Rossville's year, and it was. Well, the next two games we're going to talk about, Brad, unfortunately, a little bit of the story is going to go to injuries. As I was in Hayes for 1A. Olpe um, denies Inman their first-ever state championship in football, 35-6. to Olpe uh, back-to-back champions. Inman went into the game. We knew Kyler Conrady was out with the knee injury. And Kendon Blank, when we saw them – uh, Inman beat Sedgwick. He barely played in that game. They tried him on the first series. That was all he played. He was their leading rusher. Conradi, their leading tackler. So you go in against an Olpe team, which is favored anyhow. And, you know, it's 35-6, to six, Brad, but Inman had their opportunities in this game. It was 21-6, to six, and um, Jace Dirksen, late second quarter, returns the kickoff down to about the Olpe 20 with about a minute 20 left before halftime, Inman gets an in goal-to-go situation. And then what Olpe has done all season long, their defense just didn't give. And they denied Inman there. It's still 21-6, mid-third quarter. Inman gets a fumble recovery inside the Olpe 20. Again, get into a goal-to-go situation. And the 
Eagle defense just would not allow that game to get any closer. And then you could tell after that, Inman just got wore down. Olpe ran the ball like they always do. And at the end of the season, Olpe's 12-0, and Brad, and they allowed a grand total of 24 points this season. So a whopping two points a game given up by Olpe. So they, they, they certainly appeared to be the stronger team. And then with Inman down a couple of players, they definitely were. Yeah, I think that the uh, just how good these teams are to their classification. I don't think there's any doubt that Andale was probably the best in terms of, you know, their classification. But I tell you, Opie isn't far off. Uh, they just dominated pretty much everybody this year. I do like – I would like to see how a help would have done against them. I do think that Opie is a team that could, t- that could go toe-to-toe and beat him, and then we saw that. But I'm talking about from a healthy standpoint. It is what it is. Injuries happen. I mean, you can't. You, and I'm sure Opie had some injury injuries too. But uh, boy, just those two injuries for for him, and they just so 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 big, so key. Uh, tough way to end the season, but hey, first time finalists, and uh, they'll they'll have plenty of guys back next year to make another run at it. Yeah, they'll they'll be they'll be very good again next season. Eight man division one again. Injuries were huge. as Little River. Uh, fell to me 22 to 14 Meade scoring on their first two offensive plays of the game led to 16 nothing in the blink of an eye little river got it to the 16 six and then it was a defensive battle from there on um rylan conan got injured in the canton galva win they were playing him kind of sparingly if they needed to throw the ball he would come in at quarterback i i got since with the early start, I was able to listen to quite a bit of this game on my way to Hayes. And then Braxton Lafferty, who was taking the majority of the snaps at quarterback and, of course, is the other running back, he gets injured in this game. And then Coach Ayers was doing his best to, to, to try to rest and spell Conan and Lafferty, and Little River just was unable um, to get that key score at any time in the second half to try to have a chance to tie this game and and Meade ended up winning by eight. So again, it, injuries is so unfortunate that it happened when it did. Yeah, and I, I think you though you have to give Little River a ton of credit for making it back there with the losses that they had. I mean, they didn't graduate a ton, but Garrison and Stevens. I mean, those two guys were just as good as anybody in 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 uh, high school, not just football but athletics. I mean, two of the best athletes in the entire state. And for them to come back and, go, and run the table until the state championship game and still have a chance to win despite losing or ha- having two of their better players limited uh, r- really speaks a lot to how good this Little River program is. And how about Meade? I mean, a couple of years ago, I think they had a losing record, and now they're state champions. And it was some nine years ago where they were an 11-man state champion. So uh, doesn't matter what kind of football they're playing out in Meade. They're, they're doing it well. Yeah, congratulations to Meade. Again, they won that game over Little River 22-14. to 14. Uh, the second game in Newton that day, not near as exciting as Axtell defeated Wheatland Grinnell for the second time this season. 44 to 18 was a score in the championship game. I don't think, again, uh, not a surprise that Axtell, again, setting a top eight-man division two. No, but I did hear that Wheatland Grinnell actually kind of fought him for a while and uh, well into the second half, actually. So, and considering that Axel had, I think, mercy ruled Wheatland Grinnell earlier this year, the fact that Wheatland Grinnell took him all the way and it was what, 44, uh, 34, so a 26 point victory. So, you know, Wheatland Grinnell, they, they were there. They, they played well, I think, in this game. But, yeah, no, no question that Axel definitely deserved the state championship. Yeah, Wheatland Grinnell, I give him a lot of credit because I, I, I don't have the score in front of me. I think it was something to the effect of 62 to 16 or something the first time around. It was a, a mercy rule, as you mentioned, to to put that behind them and go out and really compete for most of this game and give them a lot of credit. And again, just a little bit too much to overcome as Axel wins eight-man division two. So it feels kind of funny that we are – just wrapping up football season. Lo and behold, Brad, it's basketball season on Friday for uh, the state of Kansas as Ed Astra, as always, can have a full Friday schedule. And before we talk about the high school schedule, the 94-7 game on Friday night is going to be the Kansas Jayhawks at St. John's. KU coming off um, 
well, I guess they won their last game. They're actually coming off of a tournament in which they lost their first game of the season down at the ESPN. Uh, I think they called it the ESPN Sporting Worlds uh, tournament down in Orlando. Um, I guess I was able to watch a little bit of a couple of these games that they played down in Orlando. I saw some of the North Texas game, and I thought to myself in that game, you know, Katie, it just kind of seemed like they did just enough to build a lead and then just kind of maintain the lead, just kind of enough to win once they got the lead. And I thought, you know, that's going to catch up with them. Well, lo and behold, it caught up with them in the Dayton game as Dayton hits a um, last-second shot that bounces up and in off the rim, off the glass, and KU falls by one point to Dayton. They do bounce back with a nice win against Iona. And I think that that Dayton game, Brad, may be the best thing in the world for KU. Well, we're going to see. Um... The, the North Texas game, I mean, it was just one of those games that, you know, once they got up by 12, 14 points, you know, I don't think North, North Texas ever made a serious run. Kansas never got up by 25 either, just kind of a blah game. You know, Kansas actually played pretty well for most of the first half against Dayton. Uh, they were up by 15 when Christian Brown picked up that technical foul. I don't know if that had anything to do with the comeback. I think it was still a double-digit lead at halftime. But, boy, it just came down to, to effort. I mean, Dayton mm. just outplayed them. There's no other way to say it. Once they outplayed them, they just they, they just wanted it more. And, I, and that's such a cliche, you know, though they just wanted it more. Well, and this is one of those cases I think that actually was the case. Dayton just wanted to win that game more than Kansas did. You know, they, they, they just seemed to be a step faster. Uh, 12 freshmen on that Dayton team. They've had some really puzzling losses. They lost to UMass Lowell. Not UMass. Not Lowell. UMass Lowell. So uh, Austin P is another team that they've lost to. So, but obviously the Dayton's got a great coach, you know, don't forget two years ago, they were online for a number one seed before COVID took the tournament out. And then, you know, again, the Iona game was similar to North Texas. Kansas was up by 20, never really got within double digits, kind of cruised in the second half. I I, I think that there's still some, some uh, things to work out, especially when it comes to like Remy Martin, he did not make a, he wasn't where he was supposed to be on that uh, final offensive possession against Dayton when uh, Kansas was up by one. They go inside to McCormick. It was supposed to be a lob over to McCormick for a layup, and because someone was because Remy Martin wasn't where he was supposed to be, they were they had some help on on the inside. So uh, it's it's going to take a little bit of time. And hey, they got some tough games coming up. You know, St. John's this week that's going to be a tough one. Yeah, it'll definitely be a, a tough one. But again, I think. A loss early in the season like that, it's not all a bad thing because coaches can take a hold of those and kind of refocus players. If, you know, maybe they're thinking that they were a little better than they are right now. So I always think that a, a loss here and there can do them a, a world of good, and I, we'll see how they respond again. They'll be on 94-7 Friday night, KU at St. John's. Well, 95.9. We'll have Nickerson at Bueller as we look at how these teams finished up a season ago in the girls' matchup, Brad. Boy, Nickerson loaded for bear. They bring back everybody from that 18-4 and four team a season ago. Um, of course, highlighted by Ava Jones um, in the paint, Josie McLean out on the wing. They have the Anxious girl. I mean, boy, Nickerson, they're not real deep, Brad, but that starting five of Nickerson is is going to be tremendous on the girls' side to play a Bueller team that was really young last year, finished 4-17. and 17. I certainly expect Nickerson to win this handily, but I think Nickerson, boy, they, they should definitely be a contender in 4A this year. Oh, thank goodness we don't have to do the pods with uh, regional substates this year because uh, they had to play McPherson last year. So you essentially had two of the five best teams in 4A in the same substate. So that won't that fortunately won't happen with Nickerson this year. But yeah, Nickerson's gonna be good, man. Uh, like you said, they're not overly deep. And if they get into a game where they get in foul trouble, we have seen it before where they get in foul trouble. And if they're playing a team that's you know of equal talent or maybe even a little bit below them, uh, they could be in some dogfights this year. That's gonna be the biggest thing is they gotta stay out of foul trouble. And remind me again where Ava Jones is going to play college basketball. I believe Arizona State. Arizona State. Okay. I, I couldn't remember from last year. But, yeah, she's she's a fun player to watch. Um, so that'll be the girls' matchup, Nickerson-Bueller. And the boys, Nickerson was 5-17 and 17 a year ago. Bueller had a really nice boys' season, 15-6. and six. 
a couple, a little bit of unknowns. I think Bueller has um, actually more returners on their team than Nickerson does. I think Nickerson had some seniors on that team. I, I, I do look for Bueller to win this game. How do you, how do you think Bueller as a whole will be this year in 4A? Well, they lost Max Alexander. I think he went down to Sunrise uh, for this year. So uh, okay. that's a big loss. I mean, you're losing one of the best scorers in, in the state. Uh, so we'll see how they can. We'll see how they do without that 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 go-to score. That's so hard to find across any level of basketball, any classification. So I'll be kind of curious about that. How Bueller does. Uh, Ryan Swanson, though, one of the great coaches out there. Uh, he's very in, invested in that Bueller program. I, I like him. He, he's the right coach for them. And uh, if, if anyone's going to figure out how to, you know, atone for the loss of Max Alexander, it's Ryan Swanson. So that's a 95.9 matchup. Nickerson at Bueller, 100.3 uh, intriguing matchup. Haven at Trinity on the girls' side of the equation. Last year, Haven was 8-14, and 14, and Trinity was 9-12. and 12. We know Haven um, – Loses McGuire, Estel. Of course, you have her younger sister. Um, looks like she's going to be a fantastic player. Um, he had some key losses. There's some some returners on both of these girls' teams. It appears to be this. That could be a pretty fun matchup in the first half of that doubleheader. Yeah, they. Uh, I think Trinity lost Haley Hughes, who is now at Hutchinson Community College. She was one of their top scorers uh, for what, a, the last decade? I mean, I think she scored over 1,000 points in her career. So a, a great player there. Lost Becca Hammersmith, a good point guard. And, uh, yes, lost McGuire Estel's big. You know, she could obviously hit from 15 feet. She'd go into paint. She had that ever-present smile. No one had more fun in sports or has more fun in sports than, than Big Mac. But, you know, they got Reese Roper back. They got Bree Bronner back. Uh, Sadie Estel, as you mentioned, they got some good returning players back. So, uh, for for Haven, it'll just be a matter of you know who's who's going to be able to score for them. You know, Reese Roper's uh, capable. Do they have a second scorer out there? The boys matchup: uh, Haven last year, seventeen and six. Uh, they lost in the sub-state championship game to Heston, and then Trinity, fifteen and eight. We do know Trinity. They lost a lot of firepower uh, from last year's team. Um, of course, Haven loses Darby Roper, but has quite a bit back on the boys' side. I, um, our pastor is from Haven. They, they follow the team really closely. They're very optimistic, and his grandson is a senior on that team as well. They, they feel like Haven can be sneaky good on the boys' side this year. What, what do you feel like that matchup between Haven and Trinity? Well, I think Trinity, as you mentioned, lost some firepower in Coaches on both sides, you know, Lonnie Paramore down to Haven's one of the best dudes in the business. I mean, I could sit there and talk basketball for hours, not just with Lonnie Paramore, but also <laughs> uh, Dwight Roper and Ricky Snyder, the Trinity girls coach. I mean, it's like a coaching fraternity. It's like a coaching greatness down there at Friday night, man. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I do think that Haven still is going to be, I think they're going to be okay still this year. I'm, I don't know if they're going to be, you know, the kind of team that can contend with a Heston like they, like they were last year. But definitely a team with a winning record and you know uh, with the capabilities of, of advancing in the postseason. Well, you you might have to search a little bit for teams that are going to stack up with Heston in most years right now. <laughs> Quite the juggernaut going as we saw again uh, last year. Uh, you and I are going to be over in Sterling, the Kicks Country game of the week on Friday night. Another intriguing matchup: Hillsboro at Sterling. This was the opener that I had a season ago. Um, Hillsborough, the girls, and they returned a bunch. They were 19 and four last year. And of course, we know the Sterling girls, state champions last year in class 2A. They were 25 and one. Um, boy, both of these teams, uh, you know, you've got Callie Breyer, of course, returning for, from that state championship team for Sterling. They've got quite a few girls back. They did have some key losses. Um, Kayla Morris on that Sterling team is, is, is gone. Now Hillsboro, they had a couple of really good looking and tall freshmen that played a lot of minutes last year. And I think that Hillsboro team, they, they, they may have felt like they were a year ahead of schedule going 19 and four uh, last year. So I think that the, the first half of our doubleheader, that could be one heck of a ball game. Yeah, it could be. And I think that uh, they, they did lose a good senior. I think her name is Tegan Worth, who was a, uh, yeah, a pretty a pretty good senior. But if if I'm not mistaken, did, did she have a sister maybe that was playing that was really good too? Um, yes, I I think she's one of those. Um, there was two freshmen that were right. nine and five t 
10 and I'm trying to remember had a, um, one had a real unusual first name and I just can't say it, but I, I, <laughs> I just can't quite pull it off my brain right now. Right. Yeah. It, it's definitely going to be another good Hillsborough team. I mean, when Hillsborough's not good at basketball, that's when you call the press because they're, they always seem like they're good boys and girls wise in basketball. And, and yeah, I'll be curious to see how Sterling does with some of the losses that they've had. They're still going to be pretty good. I think Sterling will be this year. I think Sterling, especially in this matchup, is I, I just don't know if they're going to have any size to combat um, what Hillsborough is going to be able to throw at them. But when you got Callie Breyer out there, you, um, I don't know that there's anybody on Hillsborough that can stay with her one on one. So it's a, it could be a real contrast in styles. We know Jill Rowland. Um, loves to press, loves to get up and down the floor and, and shoot quite a bit of threes. Um, so that'll be a fun first half of the doubleheader. The second half of the doubleheader, the Hillsborough boys, they were state champions a year ago, 23 and three. And the Sterling boys ended up 18 and six, got knocked out in the first game of the state tournament. So this begins life for Sterling basketball without Tyus Wilson. Um, Hillsborough, you know, he put two six back. They've got several key players coming back from that team. And Sterling's going to have to, again, find a way. They're going to be a lot more guard oriented now without Tyus Wilson. I, this, this is going to be a really tough one for Sterling to stay in, I think. Yeah. Uh, Hillsborough, once again, you know, they're, they're always good. I mean, Daryl Canole, I mean, one of the great coaches in the state, maybe one of the more underrated coaches in the state also. Uh, gosh, I mean, he might be underrated in his league for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I and, think you're right. And, and the thing that kind of bothers me is, uh, you know, he's, he still looks like he's 40. I mean, gosh, he, he hasn't aged a day in 20 years. I don't know how he does it, but it kind of bothers me. I mean, I look like I'm 50, and he looks like he's younger than me still. So I kind of, kind of jealous of Coach Canole. But, yeah, it's, it's a good Hillsborough team. They're going to be good again this year, another state contender. You know, and, and having an athlete for Sterling like Tyus Wilson, it just doesn't – you know, athletes like him just don't come around very often. Like He's a once-a-generation kind of – uh, athlete at, at a small high school like that and uh, sensational basketball player and it, it you just don't find many uh, players like him well, what did we figure when Hillsborough and Mound Ridge played when it was Daryl Canole against Vance Unrail they had about what um, 110 years coaching experience between the two of them <laughs> <laughs> yes speaking of one to be in a gym with greatness everywhere my, my goodness between Vance Unrail and, and Daryl Canole I mean my goodness it's like uh, being in the gym when Bill Self and Mike Krzyzewski are, are going up against each other uh, but I literally think I think we did look and both of them are in their 30s of years that they have coached at their school. It was some somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 67 combined coaching years between the two. It's just it's just unreal. And they'll, they'll match up, I believe, in that early season tournament. Um, that's Mound Ridge. I think it's Mound Ridge, Inman, Hillsborough and Lions. So, yeah, that's always fun um, when we see those two square off against one another. So again, that'll be the 106.1 doubleheader Friday night. Two stream games, Stafford County rivalry will be the first matchup. St. John at Stafford. St. John girls 12 and 10 a year ago. Stafford 4 and 16. And boy, this is going to be a this can be tough for Stafford because they were 4 and 16 with Emily Green and she is now graduated. Um, that's going to be uh I think really difficult for Stafford to stay close in this one. Yeah. Where's that game at? It is at Stafford. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's, it's man. I, I just green was obviously a very good player and all that. And I, I saw her play a couple times last year and just not much in terms of, you know, ball handler without her out there. Yeah. I think it's gonna be a tough night on the boys side of that equation. Uh, nine and 14 St. John boys a year ago, Stafford was five and 15, a little bit more of an unknown here for me in this one. Again, it's a rivalry game and it's at Stafford and it should, that should be an interesting ball game. I did have Stafford in the last couple of years. They had a couple of good players. I think they have, they have graduated several of those. I think the same with St. John. So a little bit of an unknown here on the boys side. I want to say St. John, if I remember correctly, they made it an unexpected run to the sub-state championship game last year down in Norwich and because I was down there. And uh, they had kind of a young team with, with uh, full of vig- uh, vigor and vigor, whatever the word is, and just played very enthusiastically. 
they had a good coach. Uh, gosh, I can't remember his name, but I'll top my head. But he went to Attica, and uh, he really has done some good things. You know, it's not easy replacing a guy like Clint Kinnaman. And uh, but I just remember watching them play last year. I'm just thinking, hey, you know what? These guys are hungry. They're playing with a lot of intensity. And uh, and if I remember correctly, they were pretty young, too. So this could be a good year for uh, for for St. John. The other stream game on Friday night, it'll be Lions at Ellsworth, the Lions girls last year. Uh, This I covered Lions last year for Doug Higgins. He'll be back. Um, covering all the Lions games this year. The girls went 3-13 and 13 last year. Ellsworth, 4-15. and 15. What I can tell you about both of these teams, they got everybody back. Um, Lions girls, I don't believe they had a senior last year, and they'll get uh, Mallory Seidel-Pinson missed all of last year due to injury. Um, and Ellsworth, I don't believe they had a senior either, and I think they played mostly freshmen and sophomores. So my biggest question when the season ended for Lions last year is what kind of work in the off season with that young team, which had a lot of juniors, some sophomores played a lot. How much work did they put in the off season? Can they take that next step and move up to where they can challenge there in a really difficult um, central Kansas league? Yeah. I was going to say three and 13 sounds, sounds bad, but when you're, when you're playing some of those opponents, like that you play in the central Kansas league, whether it's Heston or Hillsborough, or Smoky Valley, or Haven. I mean, there's some great teams over there, man. And three and thirteen <laughs> that in that league. I mean, that's not that may not be that bad considering the the, the caliber opponents. But you're right. Uh, there's there's you can return everybody, but you got to work at it in this league. I mean, there's no nights off in that league. Yeah, they play an up tempo style, and it's just nights they just could not hit shots. So of course, Mallory Seidel Pinson, she she will help in there. She was going to be the point guard. Um, got injured right at the start of uh, practice for the season. Um, and a side note, congratulations to Mallory. I saw she signed a um, uh, letter of intent. She's going to play softball right down the road at Sterling College next year. There you go. And I know Lions had some good softball through the years, too. Uh, There's one year where I think that CKL had three teams in the top four. So uh, good, good fit for her, I'm sure. The back half of that doubleheader, a Lions-Lions team last year that went 15-5, and five, got knocked out of Substate in the semis by Haven, and Ellsworth ended up going 10-7. and seven. Boy, Lions took big hit with graduation. Um, Alamos, McClure, uh, Billy Harley was also a senior, and I think I'm missing one. I think they have uh, one... I think maybe one starter returning um, from last year's, um, that would be Cade Crawford. Um, so this is going to be a really a, a learning year. The, some of the younger kids are going to have to step into to big roles for Lions for them to, um, I think, even be in the middle of the pack in the CKL this year. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, didn't they beat Heston last year? They did, and they did that. Um, shorthanded. Shorthanded. And that was, a oh, my gosh, Brad, that – that was an electric atmosphere when they when they beat Haven or no excuse me Heston ranked number one there at Lions. It was um, what an incredible game that was. Yeah, so that, that that tells you how good that team was last year. And yeah, you, you get hit by losses and but you know what? I think Lions may have a program there. Uh, you know, and what by that I mean, yes, you can take all the hits from from graduation. And it's not that those guys behind them were bad. It's just that those guys in front of them were so much were, were just that good. So. I'll be interested to see what how uh, Lions does this year. So again, that is our Friday night schedule for opening night of the high school basketball season. Again, you can go to adasterradio.com and the sports page um, to check out that schedule at any time. That's up and available. Well, the Sterling Warriors and Lady Warriors had a busy week and an even busier week this week so we'll try to recap what went on last week and let's start with the women uh, I think I texted you a little bit during this game it was last Tuesday a couple days before Thanksgiving uh, I'm driving up to Hayes as Sterling was going to play an exhibition at Fort Hayes State by the way one of my all-time favorite places to call basketball the the Gross Memorial Coliseum in Hayes I, I get a text from uh, Sterling alum that sent sending me an article that the new division two NCAA rankings had just come out and lo and behold, Sterling was going to be playing the number one team in the country as the lady tigers had moved into the number one slot. 
And all the lady warriors went out and did, Brad, was put the, the fear of God into the Lady Tigers. This was a one-point game with six minutes to play. Sterling ultimately fell a couple of key threes, went in and out down the stretch, and Hayes um, fought off the Lady Warriors 81-72. to But it was just an amazing game to watch. As, as you know, the Banger Twins, Emily Hendricks, and they're all about 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. The starting guards for Hayes are 5'10 and 5'11", 6'3 center, and Sterling just went out and went toe-to-toe with one of the best teams in NCAA Division II, and they almost pulled an ESPN-like upset. Well, you can make the argument that Fort Hayes State might be able to beat Kansas and Kansas State and Wichita State. I mean, there it, it's happened before where you see Fort – I mean, heck, Fort Hayes State's men beat K-State last year. So, Handle. Uh, yeah, so – but it, we've seen it more in women's basketball where you've seen like the Washburns of the world go beat those two uh, flagship schools in Kansas. And uh, so th- that that Sterling was that close really says a lot about the kind of team that they have this year. And, you know, it's it's you, you hear the cliche. It's not the size. It's not the, the size of the dog or whatever. I mean, they, they definitely fought and they definitely show that they are capable of what they're capable of this year. I mean, it's a nine-point loss to the top-ranked team in NCAA Division Two. I mean, Sterling should have headed back to Sterling that night uh, with their heads held high, thinking, "Hey, we we could have we could be something pretty special this year." Now, Coach was as I interviewed Coach Bassett in the postgame. She was just so extremely proud, as everybody that was there and listening was, of the Lady Warriors. And then they had a couple days off for Thanksgiving, and then they went to Tabor. Um, last Saturday, uh, the other team, Sterling and them, were picked one and two, depending on what preseason poll you wanted to look at. And Sterling down one at the half, blows out Tabor on their home floor in the second half and go on to win 74 to 53. It was 36 35 at halftime. So they allowed only 17 points in the second half in that convincing win in the game. Emily Hendrickson. Uh, went for 20, and Brad, that puts her in elite company as she is now in the 1,000-point club. She joined teammate uh, Bailey Bangert in that club. Bailey hit it um, last year, so congratulations to her. But I think that was kind of a statement win on the road on Saturday. Well, looking at the box score, Sterling didn't need to score in the fourth quarter to win that game. I mean, they scored more points in the third quarter than Tabor scored in the entire second half. Actually, they scored more points in the fourth quarter than Tabor scored in the entire <laughs> second half. So, yeah, that's that, 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 that that's definitely a statement victory there. And once again, we're seeing that they're starting five and some good players off the bench. I mean, this team, as we've said all along, it's not as deep as last year, but that might actually be okay. The only thing that might be a little concerned is if somebody gets hurt, but I tell you, Scott, I, I'm taking this team to, to battle any day. I mean, this team is good. I'm not, and again, based on what they did last year, hard to duplicate. But what they're showing me right now is that they're capable, maybe, of doing what they did last year, and maybe even better. Well, that Tabor game began a stretch of four games in seven days for both Sterling teams. Um, last night, again, we're recording this on Tuesday. They blow out St. Mary, an improved St. Mary team on the. Uh, home floor in Sterling, 94 to 63. Six players in double figures. Again, it was Bailey Albright, Emily Hendrickson, each with 20, and just eventually um, ran St. Mary off the floor. Sterling, seven of 10 from the three point line in the first half. And that sets up two big games the rest of this week. Another team. A lot of players back that will give them fits because they are big is Kansas Wesleyan. That is the Thursday game on 95-9 at 6 o'clock. And then they're home to an Avila team that I think they won one or two conference games the whole last year, but they brought in two or three transfers, and they only have one conference loss. So they'll play in Sterling at 2 o'clock on Saturday. So to say that it doesn't get any easier is an understatement. Yeah, and that's pretty much life in the KCAC, isn't it? I mean, there's really not that many easy easy trips or easy games that you're going to see. And the thing that, about this is that uh, after Saturday, uh, we don't see Sterling at home for a month. And it's not that they don't play. They actually have five games after this. Uh, and they're all on the road. So, uh, not, it, it, boy, I tell you, it, 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 it's a tough week ahead. But it's not going to get much easier after that with a lot of miles to be logged here. Yeah, they'll play those three conference games to finish out the, the season there in December, and then they'll go to Florida 
um, for a couple games after that. On the men's side of the equation, oh boy, just head scratching, Brad. 75-52, they lose at Tabor. They followed up last night with a 72-60 to loss against St. Mary, a game they won't led by double figures in the first half, led by eight at the break. And then they just hit uh, just a recurring pattern. They get into the second half close, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody will make a one-on-one move and hit a shot, and then all of a sudden, instead of making the extra pass, reversing the ball, getting a better shot, they start to try to do too much individually, and they're just not at the talent level of most of the teams in the conference to be able to do that, and that turns into a 12-point loss to St. Mary with now the game at Kansas Wesleyan, home to Avila, two teams that are playing really well. So um, needing answers and finding none right now is where this Sterling men's team is at. Such a promising start against uh, St. Mary there. I'm up by up by eight going into halftime, and boy, the wheels just came off, and they just got smoked in the second half, 49 to 29. And you know, St. Mary didn't shoot very well from three point range. You're two out of four. If you if you if I told you before the game, Scott, that St. Mary was going to go two for 14 from three, and Sterling would go eight for 19, you'd be like, victory for Sterling. This this is a win, especially when free throws really weren't uh, a factor either way. But, boy, uh, St. Mary just really took them to the woodshed there in the second half. Uh, looks like they probably pounded the ball inside and really got the job done there, maybe in transition or something like that. Our rebounded Sterling by uh, seven and the turnovers, you know, pretty even once again. But, boy, uh, just 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 disappointing when you played that well. And even uh, the game before against Tabor, to, you know, play that well in the first half and just see it just come pl- completely unraveled like that. And I, I don't the stats I'm looking at I don't have this total, but I think I remember it from the paper stats I had last night. Fifty six points in the paint for St. Mary out of a total of seventy-two that they only had sixteen points they scored outside of the paint. And that tells you that how often they were getting to the rim and getting easy baskets, and that just compounds when you're not scoring on the other end. So um yeah, I don't. I, I I wish I could sit here and tell you they need to do this and they need to do that, and I I just don't know what to tell you other than if they do not play team basketball, we're going to be here next week and we're going to be talking about um, some of the same issues. And it was a long um, locker room conversation last night. We actually didn't even get coach on the air; they were in the locker room uh, that long. So again, the Games at Kansas Wesleyan on Thursday are 6 and 8 o'clock with 545 pregame. Saturday, the Avila games are 2 and 4 in Sterling, so a 145 pregame. Well, coming up this weekend, the Chiefs are back in action as they will be in the Sunday night slot at home to take on the Denver Broncos. And we talked about this um Last week, Brad, after the Chiefs had won, that this next three weeks they have all division opponents. They're home with the Broncos and the Raiders, and then they go to the Chargers. And thanks to the Broncos yesterday defeating, or two days ago, excuse me, defeating uh, the Chargers, the Chiefs are actually one game clear of everybody in the division. So this is right in front of them, Brad. If, if they go 2-1 and one or 3-0, and oh, especially if one of those wins is against the Chargers here in the next three weeks, they can, not mathematically, but virtually wrap up the AFC West. Yeah, and the schedule really doesn't look very daunting at, d- down the stretch, does it? I mean, all three of these teams, the Broncos, the Raiders, and the Chargers, have winning records, so you got to take them seriously, obviously. The Steelers are the Steelers. The Broncos and the Bengals aren't bad. But, boy, I tell you what, uh, if the Chiefs continue on the, the trajectory that they're on, there's no reason to think they can't go 6-0 here down the stretch. But I, I just can't really figure, uh, especially Denver, out. Uh, I think it's a case where they haven't played a very tough schedule and they've won the games that they needed to win. And, you know, credit to them. And they, and they put a thumping on on the Cowboys when the Cowboys were playing really well. But I, I guess I'm still not a big believer in Denver. Um with uh, Andy Reid having a, a bye an extra week to prepare for this Denver team and, of course, playing at home, playing on Sunday night, you know that place is going to be jazzed. And, uh, you know, with all the results that are happening beforehand, you know, the Chiefs should have a better idea of what their standing is uh, in the AFC West and the AFC going into that game. It's going to be an electric atmosphere. Andy Reid owns the AFC West. 
I, I, I'm trying to convince myself that Denver's going to give the, the Chiefs a game, and they, and they might, but I, I'm failing. <laughs> I'm failing to tell myself that, that, that the, the Broncos have a chance in this game. It, you know, it just seems like this is one of the worst six and five teams I've ever seen. I just, I don't believe in the Broncos at all. I, I, you know, they, they go out and they actually pretty much handled the chargers. We thought the chargers were really good. I can't figure out this Bronco team, especially after trading Vaughn Miller. They're obviously their best defensive player. And so Teddy Bridgewater is somehow finding a way to get it done right now for Denver. And um, they'll, they'll try to find a way. I think, like you said, if the chiefs come out, they're really good off of a buy. They, they seem to have found some answers defensively. And if they can match that with figuring out a few things offensively, yeah, they can, I think they can really make some things happen here in the next three weeks and um, start securing a playoff spot. When you, when you look at, I mean, the NFL is just um, going nuts. You just can't figure anything out in this league. I mean, the Titans <laughs> lose again. Now the bills, all of a sudden they look good again. Um, thumping the saints. Um, you got the Rams losing again. The Eagles look good. Now they don't. The Cowboys stink the last few weeks. How about uh, Washington they, all of a sudden? Washington wins. I mean, I you've seen some crazy NFL seasons, but um, to, to really sit here and think and ask the question, who's the dominant team right now? And you can't come up with anybody. Um, it seems, just, it seems like it, yeah, it seems like it changes every other week, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you thought at the beginning of the year it looked like, you know, the Rams smoked the Buccaneers. Then the Buccaneers looked almost undefeatable. The Bills looked fantastic. Then they were terrible for a while. The Cowboys look great now. They stink again. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you could flip a coin right now and have as good an idea as who is going to play in, even win the Super Bowl. It's 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 been a crazy, but I think really fun NFL season. Yeah, that's kind of how the NFL is built on uh, that. Every team is flawed in some capacity, and you look at the the, the especially the AFC. I don't, I, I can't see a team out there that I would think that that's the favorite right now in the AFC. I, I mean, if you asked me last week who the favorite in the AFC was, I probably would have said the Titans. Still, heck, I think it might be the Patriots right now. Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. That would kill me to see. The worst possible Super Bowl could be New England and Tampa Bay. I, that might be the first Super Bowl I wouldn't watch. Yeah, I might go you know, play golf or something that day if it was nice in February. <laughs> yeah, let's not even um, hardly think about that. But again, the Chiefs and Broncos, again, they will be Sunday night football. That is our regular schedule for this evening. So let's go ahead and move on to um, your final thoughts. Scott, uh, in, in, uh, sometimes, and this is something I think uh, during my newspaper days kind of stuck with me, when you're covering a blowout like I did Saturday when Andale football beat uh, Frontenac uh, 53-0 for the state title, you know, you kind, you kind of try to find something that, you know, that you can hang your hat on, you know, something that, Hey, that was kind of cool to see. And it, it's cool to see dominance like that. I mean, you just don't see teams as good as Andale that often. But in the third quarter, Andale brought in uh, Marlo Sullivan to kick a few extra points. And a uh, young lady hit three out of four. And I made a comment on Twitter that, hey, has anybody or does anybody know if there's been another girl who has scored in a state championship football game before? And yeah. I, I didn't get any, any responses. Uh, I got several likes and several retweets on that, but I never, I didn't get any response. I started thinking about it, and a couple teams that I know that have had girl kickers through the years, like Topeka, Goddard had one. I know for a couple of years after they made it to the state finals, uh, but I, I think that Marla Sullivan may have been the first female in, in Kansas State championship football history to to score. And she, like I said, she made it three out of four. I even made that comment to Coach Dylan Schmidt afterwards, and his face kind of brightened as if to say, you know what, I didn't even think about that. So. Uh, if it was history, you know, congratulations. If it wasn't, um, still a pretty neat deal. That is a neat deal. I mean, we, uh, I believe she came in and kicked an extra point in the, uh, game we had against Wichita Collegiate. Uh, I think it was their final touchdown of that game. She came in and added the extra point. So yeah, if, if that, if that is a record that, that is fun. Cause it, it's fun to watch records, um, of any kind, especially in a state championship game. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, my, my daughter, Josie, at one time had uh, aspirations on kicking for the Salt Hawks before she broke her arm and couldn't do anything for a few months. And uh, I know she's she takes a great interest in kicking, talking trash. Oh, I would have made that whenever she watches a college or an NFL game or something like that. So, uh, it was, yeah, it, it was definitely cool. And hopefully, uh, you know, the girls can see uh, what uh, Marlo Sullivan did and thought, hey, you know what, maybe that's something I can do, too. Well, my final thoughts this week might, might be just a little lengthy, but bear with me. Um, I saw a little bit of Tiger Woods is really his first um, long in- interview. Of course, is ahead of the Hero World Challenge Golf Tournament this week, one in, in which he hosts. Um, we all know the the bad accident he was in with the severe um, leg injury, but there has been some footage of him. He's he's swinging, hitting balls again, and has aspirations and believes, and I think I think will um, return to competitive golf. Um, he has acknowledged that there is really it's it's just not in the in the realm anymore of him ever playing on a day to day or a week to week basis like he once did. He he will do it a lot like if for people who don't remember Ben Hogan had a car accident later in his career. And when he returned, he would pick and choose just a few events a year um, to play in. And Tiger um, has kind of indicated that is what he um, wants to do. And, and it kind of got me to thinking, I saw a little bit of Mike Greenberg talking about this today, that, um, you know, Tiger Woods, I've been able to watch his entire career, you know, when he was just breaking in as a, you know, as a 14, 15 year old kid. And we watched him almost in a blink of an eye win 14 majors, you know, and the record is 18 with Jack Nicholas. And at that point he hobbled off of the U S open course. Cause he won, had just won that 14th major and an extra full day in a playoff goes 18 extra holes in the U S open. He'd, he'd done it on a broken leg. Um, and you're thinking, you know, he comes back from this, he, he's going to easily, he's going to shatter that record. And well, and then we all know since then, the multiple surgeries, the um, the messy divorce with his wife due to his infidelity, then the addiction to painkillers, then more surgeries, and then he comes back two years ago and wins the Masters, and you think, well, he's back, and then he has this car accident, and you just started thinking, you know, there's no doubt, and I don't think in anybody's mind that watches golf at all, that he is at his prime was the best ever golfer ever that had ever played. And we were going to be watching history. And now I think, as we've seen before, we're not going to be able to see that history come to fruition. He's not going to ever be the most accomplished golfer or even consider the greatest golfer of all time. That's still going to be Jack Nicholas. And it just got me to thinking of, of how, how we sometimes miss greatness and things that are happening before our eyes when they do happen and what could have been, you know, you think back to certain sports, what would Ken Griffey Jr. I think we'd be sitting here talking, had he been healthy his whole baseball career, Brad, I think he would have broke numerous records. I mean, the, this pace he was on was incredible. Um, if you stay in the same sport, what about a Bo Jackson? What if he's, what if he doesn't, you know, break his hip and then he comes back for goodness sakes and plays major league baseball at a high level on an artificial hip. But I think it just kind of in a way made me a little sad because, you know, there would have been probably history just shattered had he stayed healthy. And now um, he's acknowledged. And I think we all knew it um, the minute it happened that we're we're just not going to see it. And we've seen it with so many athletes before and it, you just kind of feel a little sad because you're going to miss out on something that would have been really, really special. When you look at the history of sports, Scott, uh, very few individuals have had an impact on a sport. Babe Ruth, I would think, has, is the one man who had the impact on baseball and really kind of made the modern game what it is. Uh, I mean, you can point to several other outstanding players, but without Babe Ruth, who knows where baseball would have been. Um you know, I look at Muhammad Ali, you know, and what he did to boxing, Mike Tyson, what he did to boxing. I mean, Mike Tyson fights were must see events when he fought as a heavyweight champion, not necessarily 
because it was going to be a great fight, but be, because you had to get your butt in the seat when the first round started, or you might miss everything. <laughs> um, gosh, I, I, there's just so so few like that after. That was Tiger Woods, man. What Tiger Woods did to golf and made it must see TV. It was no longer just kind of the golf fans. Where every sports fan. Would would turn into watch uh, Tiger Woods. There's nothing better than seeing Tiger on that leaderboard with his red on Sundays. And you know, Scott, we can make the argument that three of the greatest moments not 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 the not the three greatest moments, but three of the greatest moments in golf history were Tiger Woods winning majors. His first major win was that uh, Masters back in '97 when he just blew the field away. The second one, which you already alluded to, was his U.S. Open win on a broken leg, and the third was his comeback victory at the Masters. That. I was at a soccer tournament in Hutchinson, and it was kind of funny because I'm, I'm kind of walking around waiting for my son's game to start with my head to my phone, and I kind of looked up at one point, and there are so many people with their heads bowed into their phones watching Tiger Woods. I mean, it was it, it's for golf to be must-see, you just don't see that very often. Tiger Woods was must-see sports. He was arguably the best recognizable athlete in the world for several years. And his impact on the game cannot be measured. I think when, if you look at golf history, there's two people that are responsible for golf being where it is and what these players are able to make financially today. And it would be Arnold Palmer and Tiger Woods because Arnold got the tour on the map. He got it into the limelight. He was such a great player had such the charisma and the personality and then of course jack nicholas came along and they had fantastic duels but he got it on the map and then tiger took it to the heights it's at and if you ask any of the younger players that are on the tour today um who was responsible for where they are today i think without a doubt they say it's tiger woods yeah and i'd be remiss to forget what wayne gretzky did to hockey also so there, there's very few athletes in the, in the history of sports that had that kind of an impact on one sport like Tiger Woods did to golf. So, again, if you want to look at the Ad Astra schedule, go to adastraradio.com and the sports page. It's up there for, it's hard to believe, Friday night basketball on Ad Astra. So, again, thank you all for tuning in and for this week's View from the Pest Box from for Brad Hallier, this is Scott Hogan. God bless. Have a great week.